Have you thought about starting your own podcast? Well, if you have, then you want to download Anchor. It's the easiest way that you can make a podcast. They give you everything you need in one place, and it's absolutely for free. You can use it right from your phone or your computer. They have creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll even distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere, like on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and others. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So if you were thinking of starting your own podcast, you want to download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. How we doing? This is Rob Foster with RBF Fitness and Nutrition. People upgrade their iPhones, they upgrade their Androids, they upgrade their laptops, but yeah. they're operating with the same brain that they operated with for the last decade. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. You know why you do what you do. So racism, it's out there, but it doesn't have to stop you. Just because somebody might look at you a certain way, that doesn't have to stop your forward progress. Where you have to eliminate the excuses, you gotta make that game plan say, for me to get to that point. All right, happy Thursday, everyone. This is a new time slot for us for this just for this week because my guest is joining us from Australia. So we're actually talking to someone in the future and he's talking to someone in the past because over there it's Friday morning. So it's just great how that works and how technology allows for this to happen. So it was worth bringing him on and switching days and switching times because he's got an amazing story to share. So I keep telling you guys, I searched the globe looking for new ways to inspire you and to help you step into your greatness. So before we get there, you know I got to show you the gear. So we have hoodies, shut up and grind. We have long sleeve. We have it never gets easier. You get stronger. We have shut up and grind shirts. And we have probably about 20 different, different designs in the store. And I made the link easy. It's shutupandgrindgear.com. And that goes to support the show. And if you want to support the show financially, you can go to shutupandgrind.me slash support. And that will go to help get these videos translated into different languages so we can help more people around the globe. So there's that. So what are we going to talk about today? Again, another dynamic story of someone following their, their dream. But then when you get there, you find out that your dream is even bigger and you want to have an even bigger impact. And so the man I'm bringing on now, as I said, he's joining us from Australia. He's a doctor. He's a very well-educated man, and he's an entrepreneur. And we're going to talk about his journey and then how we can relate that journey to you. All right. So welcome, Dr. Deepak Gore. Hi, Rob. Welcome, how are you? welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for joining thanks. us. Thanks, Rob. 
Right. So just uh, let, let's let, let the audience know a little bit about your backstory. So like if I, if I were to say, who is Dr. Deepak? How would you answer that? So I'm a primary care physician based in Melbourne, Australia. I've had a career in uh, surgical residency, in management consulting, in the pharmaceutical sector, in blood products. Uh, have lived mainly in Australia, but did live in the United States, lived in New York, where I worked for the US subsidiary of a US pharmaceutical company. Uh, And now I'm on the verge of starting a new primary physician practice called Pop-Up GP, uh, and I'm based in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, so how's Melbourne compared to New York City? Well, they're very, very similar, actually. Both very European cities, culturally very rich. Melbourne's a city of around 5 million. You know, obviously New York's more like 8 or 9 million, so it's a much larger city. Um, yeah. But I, I went to New York when I was a second-year medical student and fell in love with New York uh, on a trip there. I had a sister who lived in Canada at the time, so we had a trip for about uh, a month or two along the East Coast to the United States and Canada. Um, and subsequently went to New York for holidays. Um, in the three pharmaceutical companies I worked in, they were all New Jersey-based company, so I'd go to New York regularly for international meetings, conferences, and so I got to spend, got to spend a lot of time in New York, and finally ended up moving there, uh, and then returning to Australia. Nice, awesome, yeah. I was actually born in New York. I was born in uh, Far Rockaway. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. yeah, part of part of Queens. The rest of my family was born in Brooklyn, but uh, I was born in Far Rockaway. There was a an apartment fire, I, I believe, back in the day. So that's why I was born elsewhere. <laughs> I remember yeah. seeing a talk, uh, an Anthony Bourdain show where he spent time in Rockaway. Okay, nice. Yes, good stuff. All right, so so you, you grew up in Australia? Yeah, so I was born in Melbourne, okay. went to school in Melbourne, went to medical yep. school in Melbourne, started working as a doctor in Melbourne, and about um, five years into working uh, in private practice, I felt that I had you know, reached a level of proficiency and I wanted a new challenge. And so I sat down with my best friend, who's from a pretty well-known Melbourne business family, and asked a number of external stakeholders for their opinion. So I spoke to um, two of the main MBA schools in Australia. I spoke to three of the global consulting firms, uh, you know, all US companies, actually, McKinsey, uh, what was then called Booz Allen Hamilton, and Boston Consulting Group. I spoke to some HR firms, and they all gave me this uniform opinion, Dr plus MBA equals management consultant. So whilst I was in uh, private practice, I started an executive MBA, which is a part-time MBA. And in my first semester, to my surprise, I joined a management consulting firm. So I was in general practice. I was uh, commencing my MBA my first semester, and I joined a boutique management consulting firm. And I thought, you know, to transition from a clinical career to a consulting career would probably take a, a a number of years. And two years later, I moved to Sydney to do some consulting for Credit Suisse, one of the Swiss banks. And uh, a few months after that, went to Merck, the US pharmaceutical company. So then I began this, this, this process of having a pharmaceutical industry career. I was at Merck in Sydney. I then returned to Melbourne and I was the medical services manager for Australia's blood fractionator. It was then called uh, the Australian Red Cross Blood Service. It's now called mm-hmm. the Australian Red Cross Lifeblood. I then went back into private practice and then went to another pharmaceutical company, Bristol Myers Squibb, uh, and then transitioned from Australia with that firm to the United States. Uh, 
and then returned to Australia with another US firm, Celgene. And okay. uh, Celgene was uh, then acquired by Bristol Myers Squibb. And I was looking for my next opportunity. And I came up with a concept of a new model of general practice. Now, mind you, this is prior to the pandemic. So I, I decided to call it Pipe GP. I had the idea that rather than being a conventional practice where you come to us only, we would offer a service where we come to you on a regular basis. We come to your home. We come to your office. Um, yeah. and, and I was planning that, that, uh, that business and then 2020 happened. And one, one issue that happened in Australia that happened in the US, happened around the world, was that patients moved to a telehealth model where you could see a doctor via telephone on a regular basis yeah. or via video on a regular basis. And so the concept of a video you know, visit came into my mind so that the practice transitioned uh, or the idea transitioned. And then the final part for me was that, you know, obviously a number of cities around the world have gone through these significant lockdowns with fewer people going into the city either for work or for leisure activities. And so I decided, you know, this idea would be better just outside the city. So I moved to, I decided to, to place this in one of the suburbs, a suburb called South Yarra, uh, which is on the fringe of the city, uh, just southeast of the city. And that's where I'll be opening my business, but offering essentially video visits, home visits, office visits, aged care visits, and conventional clinic visits. And so it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, has, 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 have people's mindsets changed? Um, what is the value of time? Obviously, when you go to see a doctor, you know, there's a time issue involved. You, you travel there, you wait there to see your physician, you see your physician, and then you travel back home. And what I'm offering is a, is a different type of service where I will come to you. I will come to your home. I'll come to your office. If you live at an aged care facility, I'll come to your aged care facility. And you can still see me at the clinic if you want to, or you can uh, choose a video call. So it's going to be interesting for me to see the mindset of patients in terms of how they approach the concept and, you know, what what is their preference in terms of, you know, how they see their doctor. True. All right. So have you, did you always want to be a doctor? Yeah. My father, my father was a doctor. My father's best friend was a doctor. I was named after one of my father's best friends in New Delhi. I think my role models were doctors. Uh, one of my older okay. sisters is, is an OBGYN. All my brother-in-laws are doctors. So I think my role models were always doctors. So I think that was, uh, they were always the people I looked up to. So, um, you know, so that, that was from a very, very young age. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So like that's, that goes back to where, you know, whoever the five people you hang out with, you know, you're going to be, be the sixth or whatever they do. Like yes. that's a, yes. it's a prime example. Like I say, every show, that's like why a lot of professional athletes have kids who become professional athletes because that's yeah. what they're exposed to. And then people that grew up in a life of poverty, their kids tend to repeat that cycle, you know? So mm -hmm. that's uh, just another testament to that. So you had that at, at a young age and then how did you go about pursuing it? So in, in, in Australia at the time, it was a pretty straightforward issue in terms of what, what um, professional path you follow if it, if it happens to be a path which involves university. Um, when I you know, did year 12, which is the final year of school here, your entrance into a university was purely based on your mark. So in the sense of, you know, in the way that in the United States is often an interview process, and we have that process now in Australia, 
Um, at the time, we didn't have that process. It was purely on a mark. So you had to score from memory, I think, in the top 0.1 percentile of the community mm. uh, to get into, say, medical school. And I think yeah. to get into law school, law school was similar. Um, and so for me, it was a very um, straightforward process of, you know, you obviously have to work very, very hard. You have to plan in terms of what subjects you choose. There are some compulsory subjects at school, like English is compulsory, for example. And there are subjects you tend to do for various uh, professional endeavours. For medicine, you tend to do the sciences. So a math subject, a biology subject, potentially a physics subject, usually a chemistry subject, for example. And so you pursue those, those subjects earlier on. Um, and then you obviously have to do, work very, very hard and get a very, very good score. And, you know, then you get into your university of choice. Okay. All right. So, yeah, so that seems pretty strict because uh, here it's like you kind of, well, I mean, not so much in medical school, but just school in general. Like if you have money to pay for, for the college and your grades are okay, you get in. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's pretty so, much the process so here. So we've, we've large, Australia has largely had a public university concept. So the, the universities um, are not privately owned. Now, I think, mm. when I, I think when I was probably at university or perhaps when I was actually a doctor, Australia had its first sort of major private university. And in, and in that school, I think you probably can pay a fee and, and get in. I think you probably have to have a certain, you know, academic result anyway. Mm. Uh, and now some of the... The, um, the public schools do also have a fee-paying option to some degree, so the model has evolved. But I think, from memory, when I, you know, when I finished school, that model didn't exist. You know, there there was no, from memory, a private, you know, university approach where you could essentially pay a fee and get get into that school. Sometimes people would go overseas. You know, Australia has relationships with a number of other you know, countries around the world, particularly United Kingdom, and so sometimes people would go to. Uh, medical schools in other parts of the world, they then have to go through some sort of accreditation or registration process to practice in Australia. Um, so that practice, you know, existed overseas more than within Australia when I, when I was at school. Okay. And so how did, how did you pick what branch of medicine you wanted to go into? Look, I think it's, again, it's an iterative process, you know, you, your influence, you know, you talked about culture a few minutes ago. I think you're really influenced by the people you look up to and you meet people along the way who you just, for some reason, you have some simpatico with. You enjoy the way they operate. You find the work interesting. I initially pursued a surgical career and that was probably based on someone who was, you know, we had a tutor when I was in fifth year medicine and I, you know, he was, a, he was really a mentor for me for probably at least a decade. I really looked up to him. I still look up to him. And um, I think I was significantly influenced by him. And then some of the other surgeons I trained with as a student and then worked with as a doctor. And so I certainly pursued that path for a few years. And then I decided to go into general practice. Uh, and general practice was something I had more familiarity with. My father was a general practitioner. You know, my father's best friend was a general practitioner. Um, and I'd grown up in a, with a medical business. So we owned a general practice. In fact, we owned a practice which was in our home. So we had a general oh, wow. practice downstairs and we had the, the home sort of the rest of the floor and upstairs. So I grew up with that, with that, you know, business. Um, you know, it really was the family firm. I mean, again, you, you mentioned culture. I think culture is remarkably important. And, yes. you know, I think it's important whether it's a family culture or an organization culture, and it doesn't matter if the organization's a, a one, one person show or a 10 person show or a 10,000 person show. I mean, I think culture is so important 
you know, to how we view ourselves, how we perform our roles, our mindset, our values. Uh, the, I think the more experienced I get in life and in terms of career, the more I think, you know, culture is everything. I, I agree a hundred percent. I can't, I can't agree enough because you hear so many different, you know, roadblocks that people go through and it's like, just trying to tell people that it's in your head and some people just don't want to hear that, but it really is. You get the right mindset, the right driving yeah. energy, no matter what life puts in front of you, you can get past it. Yeah. And it's remarkable. You know what you said about uh, mindset. I mean, when people have difficulties, say you're in an organization and you have a difficult difficulty and a peer or a manager speaks to you, you know, self-analysis, it can be quite painful. Um, realization of skills you have or don't have can be quite challenging. And when someone talks to you about that, you know, it can be very, very co confronting. Obviously, it makes a difference in terms of the scenario, the individual, the pre-existing relationship. And, you know, for the majority of times when I've seen people have those discussions, it hasn't actually resulted in a significant change. But then you see other individuals and they have a remarkable change and they change overnight. And you know, they progress, their career progresses. Uh, they they actually have a realisation that, you know, what this individual is saying about the way I'm conducting myself is actually real. It's more than one person usually. It's usually a consistent thing. And, you know, I'm the one who has to perhaps, you know, readjust. I was talking to um, uh, a friend of mine the other day about Roger Federer. And, oh, yeah. you know, Roger, Roger Federer, when he was a young tennis player, was known to be, you know, reasonably petulant. He was not particularly successful. And he obviously had a realisation that he needed to change the way he approached, you know, his craft. Uh, and now, you know, obviously with, with Rafael Nadal, you know, he has the record for the most Grand Slams, you know, in history. Um, and so I think that's an ex example of someone who, you know, had that mindset change where something happened, you know, there must have been a conversation or, or conversations. He decided that, you know, he had to pursue a different path pursued a different path, and then you see the result. Yeah, sticking with the sports theme, even Michael Jordan, like as great yeah, as he yeah. was in the beginning, dominating, you know, scoring 50 points and losing, 60 points and losing. Then he realized, you know, what What if I score 30, and then this one scores 10, this one scores 12, this one scores 15, and now we're winning. And then, you know, just having that mindset shifts. Like I know when he first came into the league, that Bulls team was kind of trash. Like, it was just yeah. him. Yeah, it was just yeah. him carrying them. But then once he realized, I can get these other people involved. And you kind of see that in, in your household. You see that in business. You see that with your group of friends. And going back to what you said, having that sense of culture and community, it means everything. Yeah, so I, you know, I got into basketball, actually. And it, and it was a work-related issue. I was doing a primary care physician role where I was working after hours. So basically a 6 p.m. till 6 a.m. role. And I, there, there were a few nights when I got home at, say, three or four in the morning. And I turned on the TV, and that was the season. It was the Spurs Heat Finals. So I got into basketball. I guess that must have been, I, I'm, this is a guess, but maybe sort of 2012, 2013, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was the, that they had, I think they had two final series in a row. And I started watching that. And, of course, I watched LeBron James. And that got me into basketball. So I obviously, I knew who Jordan was, but I wasn't really a basketball fan then. But I, mm. but I saw The Last Dance. The Last Dance is an amazing piece of work because yep. clearly people are very honest and he's very honest about his, <laughs> yep. strengths and his strengths and his weaknesses 
But you're exactly right. I mean, again, it was a culture that they wanted to win. They know that they, they knew they needed to change their dynamics. You know, when Rodman came in, obviously changed the dynamic again. Um, but it's that real team mindset. And I think it takes, it does take a very focused culture to say, okay, we're good. We've achieved a certain amount of success. We need to get better. We need to improve. How do we do that? Is it is it a way of working? Is it an individual? Is it individuals? Um, even the, the way that Steve Kerr took that final shot in that final series, um, yeah. you know, because it was unconventional because uh, the, the opponents were saying, oh, it's, it's going to be Jordan. They weren't thinking about Steve Kerr. Yeah. So I think you know, that, uncon- that, 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 you know, you know, you hear about asymmetric warfare, uh, that, that unconventional approach to strategy is very, very important. Um, and again, I think it, it does get back to culture. And, you know, like, like you, I mean, culture to me is, is critical. Yeah. And Tom Brady just proved that. One, once yeah. again, because the year before, you yeah. know, you, you can argue Jameis Winston threw for more yards than Tom Brady did, but they didn't have the right culture. And really, I mean, yeah, I know when Brady came, you know, Grant came in, AB came, yeah. Yeah. but he, he brought that winning mentality. And yeah. what's going on in culture today is like winning is frowned upon. And what people don't realize is that, there are winners and there are losers. Like Vin, the great Vince Lombardi said, if, if winning doesn't matter, why do they keep score? <laughs> <Right. laughs> you know, and, and, and that's, a, that's another example. You know, I, I had never watched the NFL in Australia. I moved to the US in 2017 and I started watching and I started enjoying it. I, mm. I watched that, that, uh, that Patriots uh, Eagles uh, Super Bowl in a bar in New York. Um, and, and so I watched, I watched the, uh, you know, the Bucks game, you know, when they won the Super Bowl a few weeks ago. And so, again, I think, you know, he's obviously a really interesting exponent of culture, as was, you know, as, as, or as is Bill Belichick. And so I think yeah. it, is, it is fascinating how, you know, you have an individual who has a remarkable influence on the game. And, and, and you see that again in organisations, whether it's a leader or a team player, that, you know, one person can have a really positive influence and also one person can have a very negative influence. Um, but it's re- remarkable. And I mean, one of the points about the Super Bowl was that every individual who scored points for the Bucks, they had all been free agents, right? They'd all, yeah. they'd all come from someone. They, yeah. weren't, they weren't all, they weren't all the established Bucks team, which obviously was, 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 was trending upwards. And I think Jameis Winston, I think he, one of the things that really hurt him was his, his interception record, right? He had a huge interception record. But, it, you know, it's a remarkable statistic that, you know, every point was scored by someone who had previously been a free agent. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, sticking with that comparison, because I think this is, this is uh, relevant to the overall message today is Brady made proper decisions. Whereas Winston is like, I can get it in there instead of thinking, should I try to get it in there? Whereas Brady was making the right, the right plays. So he took, he took their talents and got the most out of like imagine if there was if there was like a, a normal season just yeah. just imagine how dangerous they could have been like and they won the super bowl like but imagine yeah. they they probably would, would have went like 14 and 2 or 15 and 1 if they had a full off season where he could put his experience into that team well that's a, well that was that's another part of it right they obviously didn't have a preseason and when, when Brady spoke to Bruce Arians about the scheme, uh, Bruce sort of said to him gently, would you mind adjusting to our scheme rather than, you know, us adjusting to your scheme? It's a lot easier for one person to adjust than, 
you know, a couple of dozen people? And he said, sure. And that was, you know, that, he's obviously a mature, incredibly successful professional. Um, and there's probably a degree of EQ there where he's like, oh, I'll adjust to you. I'll learn your way rather than you learning my way, despite me coming in with, you know, nine, you know, nine Super Bowl attendances and six rings. And, and you know, he just, and they had to be pragmatic. I mean, being pragmatic is very, very important. You know, yes. all the time in business, you've got time critical issues. You know, for me, for starting this business, I'm thinking about so many individual pieces of, of work, of infrastructure I have to plan. And I was talking to someone who's helping me with, with, with design. And I said to him, look, I have to do this. I have to resolve this. And then I have to move on to the next issue. I don't want to dwell on something for an inordinate amount of time. I need to move on and go to the next issue because there's always a next issue. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, that's, that's really, really important. I mean, I think, again, you know, when you talk about what influenced me, I think, you know, I'm highly goal orientated. I can still remember doing like my, you know, my 12 times table in grade two. And so I think, <laughs> you know, it, no, knowing how you do things, I think it's incredibly important to your point about culture and mindset and trying to achieve. Uh, and also, I think one thing that really helped me, I think, in this whole process was um, during the MBA, we did a, a human resources subject. I think it was called Managing People and Organisations. And when we did that subject, that was the first time I'd ever heard of Myers-Briggs. That was mm. the first time I think I'd really heard about emotional intelligence. And so you studied emotional intelligence. You studied Myers-Briggs. You studied um, motivation, and not just motivation, but, you know, I learned about intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. Yep. And for me, that was really critical because I could then look at any role, any potential business opportunity and say, for my value set, and I, you know, know my, because I, I know my intrinsic motivation, I know my extrinsic motivation, how does this place me or how does this apply to me? And I think for an individual, whether they're going through a challenging time, a wonderful time, a period of growth, um, you know, knowing your motivation is really, really important. Yeah. Uh, knowing your personality type, trying to understand emotional intelligence. Obviously, that's something you probably can't change as much as you can change other things. But it is even having that that um, insight into your own behavior, how you interact with others, how others interact with you is remarkably important. So I think that that subject, you know, during the MBA was actually really critical to me for sort of several several decades. Um, you know, one one interesting thing about the MBA, we talked about, you know, public schools and private schools and obviously cost is an issue in education. You know, I remember thinking, you know, the MBA... My own record label, which is 1989, uh, you know, put out my first CD when CDs were pretty new, especially for independent artists. You know, all my independent artist friends locally, most of them were still doing the 12-inch record. I'm like, you know what, I'm, they break too easy. Finished it. Um, wow. And so I think, I think, you know, again, when people look at education and obviously in the U.S., education and costs are they're, they're very, very different to the rest of the world. Um, you know, it's really important to have that goal and to be able to plan. And it's very difficult when you think about how young we were when we finished school and then go to college. You know, it, it's 17. I mean, I, I went to, into medical school at 17. Um, wow. in, a, in Australia at the time, we didn't have a pre-med or pre-law system. So you went just, straight uh, from school into me, medicine. Let me let me jump let me jump in for a second. Uh, started life started getting more involved, and I started just kind of fading away from that. And I kind of consciously just changed direction. I'm like, I almost walked. I kind of like walked away from music for a while. And you find many musicians will do this. You know, they're doing something for a while, and because their heart's not completely in it, 100. percent And mine wasn't. Mine wasn't as being the artist. I walked away, 
and just stopped doing music for a little while. And it became more doing family stuff and uh, just kind of thinking about what I would do next. And it wasn't until you know, a year or so after that that I, you know, music draws you back in. Uh, and I started playing more and doing, going out and performing. When I was doing the records I was releasing before, I was performing as a track, what's known as a track artist, meaning I would have my music tracks on a CD and take that to clubs and events. And then I'd be up on stage performing, you know, singing the song live. Uh, but now I was moving more towards of organic where I would be, you know, bringing a piano and playing and singing in different kinds of events. I was more doing the coffee houses and bookstores and, and smaller type venues as opposed to the, the big dance clubs. Yeah. But I was enjoying myself playing, playing the music and it wasn't something that was going to become a career at doing that, but I got into recording again. And that's kind of what segued me into the love songs aspect where, you know, a lot of these songs I'm writing are love songs. So were, were you with your current wife at this point? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Continue. Love yeah. Song. She was hundred percent supportive of everything, you know, since we've been together and, uh, I kind of remember, Rob. I was. You can you can do whatever and they'll do it. You can yell at them. You can swear at them. <laughs> you can do whatever you want to, and they'll, they'll <laughs> right. just they'll just get the job done. With yeah. the leaders, leaders want the process. They want the process, and then the thinkers they want to know why the process is the way it is, and then the feelers just want to know that you care about them. Like I'm gonna do this, but I want to know that you care. You know, yeah. like like they want the pat on the back. So let's so knowing how you do things, but as a leader, knowing how others do things will make you a more effective leader. Yeah, and it's a critical issue when you think about change management. You know, every organization is in a perpetual state of change. And just as you said, you can't communicate change one way. You know, you can't have a meeting and say, we're now going to change A, B, and C. Now go do it. I mean, you need to actually speak, provide some perhaps written information. Um, have an opportunity for dialogue, you know, have multiple discussions so people can see what this what this roadmap is and, you know, appreciate that everyone's got different learning styles, different communication styles. You know, I, I was asked recently, is there, a, is there a skill set that I've worked on? And, you know, one of the, the, the parts I've worked on is really active listening to the point that during uh, the pandemic, when we had telehealth calls, I'd be listen, talking to patients and the patient would say to me, are you there? And I'd say, yeah, I'm just listening to you. Um, mm. Because you know, people aren't used to being, they're not used to not being interrupted when you actually, yeah. someone else actually just listens and is, you know, trying to understand the information. And in medicine, it's so critical. You know, you know, the first part of any consultation is the history. You know, that's the patient telling you what's happening and you need to listen and pay attention. Sometimes the diagnosis comes from the history prior to an examination, prior to doing investigation, prior to initiating any treatment. And so listening to people is very, very important. And in medicine, you know, listening, listening to a patient, understanding their perspective, understanding their view, understanding their concerns is just so critical. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's, that's key in really in any industry, no matter what it is. When people come to me for, for a fitness consultation, same thing. I, why, why are you here? What do you want to do? What have you tried yep. tried in the past? Yep. Do you have any any prior injuries? Any prior surgeries? Like, you know, I need to get all of that info before we can yeah. even talk about you know your game plan. So yes, yeah, same same exact thing. And even with the business coaching, yes. Yeah. All right. So you know, what do you want to do? How are your numbers? You know, uh, yep. what's what's your biggest struggles in your business? And you get all that info. So yeah, you hit that yep. right on the head. 
So yeah. you had mentioned about pre-med, pre-law being different. All right, you can pick pick back up there. Yeah, so so in Australia at the time, we had no form of any type of pre-med, pre-law course. So you went straight from school into your into your college course. Now the system is different. In some universities, you can still do that. But in many universities, you've got to do an undergraduate bachelor's and then go into medicine or law or other or other courses. So, you know, I entered medical school at 17. I was a doctor at 23. Um, nice. And when I think about, um, you know, about, you know, people coming through college today, I mean, obviously, it's a challenging, challenging issue to basically say at 16, 17, 18, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. Uh, and you probably don't have the perspective to know that, you know, you can change what you do. You can take a different path. Um, and, and you know, I think the, the, the most important issue in that setting is just to provide as much information as you can. Yes. And, you know, again, to, to just add, add more value to what you just said, that, yes, you can change. I feel like people fall into the trap of doing what they should be doing. Instead yeah. of what, what they want to be doing. That, that's one big thing that I help people with is that they're like, well, you know, I have a degree in XYZ. It's okay. Put the degree aside. Like, what yeah. would you want to be doing? Like, what's your dream job? It's like, you know, well, I don't want to waste my degree. I said, listen, forget about the degree. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. like, like like I said, I, I always knew I wanted to be some type of, of performer. Right? I didn't yep. necessarily have to be on stage or anything. But when I first opened up my gym, I had this big old speaker. It's actually over here behind the curtain. I had this big old speaker. Had a handheld microphone, like I didn't want yes. one of the one of the Britney Spears microphones, right? I wanted a <laughs> handheld microphone, and, and every class was like a production. You know, it's like like I went up there and just kept it upbeat and motivational, like giving speeches, yep. singing into the yep. microphone, and just yep. kept everything upbeat. It's like because like yep. that because that's me. Like that's yep. that's who I am. Like I don't want to be Richard Simmons. I don't want to be anybody else. Like I just want to be me. And like yep. in my passion and my my drive, all that stuff showed with every single class. And it grew and it just grew organically. Like I really wasn't doing like paid Facebook ads or anything. It just people were yep. like, yo, you guys got to get down and check out that gym. You know, so like when you do what you want to do, you have no problems waking up. You have no problems showing up. You have no problems staying later, you know, and yeah. you have no problems listening. Yeah. And I, you know, I really enjoy work. And I mean, I, I also enjoy having that balance, you know, the ability to, to, you know, have your professional role, learn, have your, you know, personal life, have the things which give you balance. For me, that's, you know, usually cooking, exercising. I enjoy being around people. I enjoy going out for dinner. That was one of the challenges of, you know, of last year that we know we, you know, at various points, you know, you couldn't go to a restaurant, you know, you couldn't see your friends. Um, I, you know, I didn't see members of my family, my siblings, my mum my nieces and nephews for many, many months at a time. And so I yep. think uh, understanding your motivation is critical. I mean, I think that that sort of self-analysis is of great value to people probably at any point in their career. And just touching on one thing you said about, about roles and opportunities, I mean, I think one thing that people need to understand is, you know, we have a very long life and yep. you have a potentially very, very long career. And for someone going into, say, college, you know, this year, they're not going to have, it's unlikely they'll have one career. They'll probably have two or three or more careers. Uh, and even for someone who's, say, 30 or 40 or older now, you know, they can still change their careers. They can still pivot. Um, yeah. 
and and have these multitudes of careers. It, it, we, it's not the 1950s where people went to a company and they were a company person and they worked for that company for 30 years and then they got a go family member, whoever, who's, who's always talked about wanting to play the instrument that you know and sit them down for a half an hour and give them a free lesson and see if you can get them started on playing. Yeah. And that's how it began. Uh, and then the very next year, uh, I started reaching out to media in our area and that's they were like, well, you know, you know, can we go actually see somebody who's having this free lesson? And then I'm like, the light bulb goes on. You know, I should probably be actually contacting music schools directly. And that's how it grew. You know, I'll talk about that in a little bit, but it's grown as we created our own internal database of 5,000 music schools and stores around the world that we individually connect with to get them to partner with us. But in the early days of Teach Music Week, uh, we ran into a lady who created something called Kids Music Day. I'm sorry, Kids Yoga Day. Yoga Day, okay. And I'm like, Kids Yoga Day, that's really cool. Well, what about Kids Music Day? I wonder if there is such a thing. So, you know, I'm immediately jumping on Google and looking. No, can't find, there's nothing, nothing. So we jumped in, bought the domain, kidsmusicday.org, and from there it was born. And we started, you know, six months after Teach Music Week because we wanted to separate them, you know, in the calendar. Uh, in October, Kids Music Day, we partner with the same, you know, music schools and music stores. And instead of offering a free lesson, which some of them do for Kids Music Day, but they also offer things like an instrument petting zoo, uh, kids, a kids open mic, uh, uh, student performance. Like they have their students perform either in-house at their location or out in the community somewhere. Uh, almost anything they can think of that either benefits or celebrates kids playing music, we encourage them to do. And then we promote it. You know, we reach out to the media, both national and, and locally in everybody's area, all the major markets, to let them know that this is going on. And we've been growing this over the last five, six years to now partnering with over a thousand music schools and stores each year to do this and getting partners, um, several, over a dozen music brands that support us as promotional partners and over a dozen celebrities that lend their name. Like this is, like this isn't it. Like this is not what I envisioned as a teenager, like this was yeah. not it, and so I was like, "You, you didn't, you didn't envision a podcast as a teenager." <laughs> I meant as a restaurant manager. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, well, no, well, there, uh, God, there were no podcasts back then. That's <laughs> but, right. Um, that's, that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like there weren't any of them, but like, but being on TV was was always a thing. But then, like, as you start meeting people who who are on TV and meeting celebrities for the first couple of years. Like now, you know, we'll just do it this way. It'll be just a, a loose organization. Uh, but being a cause-based mission, you know, we realized this eventually this is something we needed to do. And, you know, we had trouble initially trying to create the nonprofit. You know, we taught, we worked with an accountant, an attorney, and then an accountant, all who, you know, were going to try to lead us on the right way to create the nonprofit. But in the end, after two, three months, four months, nothing was happening. Uh, it was probably longer than that, you know, and I was getting frustrated. Finally, I'm like, you know what? I know we need to do this. Let me just put it out to the universe, you know, because I know there's other nonprofits out there that will see some of my posts. You know, how did you create your nonprofit? What did you do? And uh, one of the another music nonprofit who was one of the early beneficiaries to our book because we donate proceeds of her book to other nonprofits. Uh, she wrote back and said, hey, we used this outfit down in Florida uh, that you know, helped us, you know, create our application for the government. And you know what? Me, it was the best thing we ever did. Let me highlight that 
because again, right, going back to the whole assessing your your support system, like it boggles my mind how people take advice from people who aren't doing what they want to do. <laughs> that drives me insane because as I was listening, as I was listening to you there, I was like, just find someone with a successful nonprofit <laughs> and, say, hey, and say, "Hey, how did you do that?" <laughs> you know, it's like just so so many times we we let the people in our circles, and I'm not saying this happened to to you, but we right. let people in our circles talk us out of the things that we want to do, but but they aren't even doing it. <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah, you don't. You know, you find people who are doing what you already doing what you want to be doing yes. and learn from them how they did it. Yes. And that's absolutely what happened. I mean, this outfit in Florida, you know, they know how to put the round pegs in the round holes and the square pegs in the square holes for your application to become a 501c3. And we literally, from the time I hit submit on the application to the time we received the email back from the IRS saying we're in one month. Wow. Which was, um, yep. I, I already had the microphone, the structure, I, I like I had how to do it already. I just wasn't doing it. So stepping into yeah. it was pretty simple. But but from there, I started cr creating a couple of di uh, digital courses. And again, like things that can't be taken and you got it done in a month. Right. And, you know, that's that's shortchange that next time for the next thing you're trying to do and find someone sooner. And, and another one of our mentors, you know, saying is ask, 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 you know, become an askaholic. Yeah. You know, just mine alone. So how did the pandemic affect you in the beginning? Like how hard was Australia hit? So Australia, look, Australia took a very conservative view of how we manage the pandemic. So we in, in this in the city I live in, which is Melbourne, which is the capital of Victoria, which is the second largest state in Australia. You know, we had a period of time when um, virus numbers were going up community transmission was going up. The majority of cases were from returned Australian travellers who had been in the United States or Europe, uh, less, less so from China. Um, and so we had, you know, quite long periods of lockdowns where, for example, you could not travel more than, say, five kilometres from your home and you could only travel for really, I think there was four reasons, work, a medical or pharmacy or grocery issue or around one exercise. So you're allowed to do at least you know, around one hour a day of exercise. Mm. So if you were out for it. To a fitness business summit. And I was there just surrounded by people with six figure, multiple six figure, seven figure business and um, uh, fitness business empires. I'm like, holy crap. I was it's like, this, this, it's this, possible. Yeah, like this, this is a whole world that. Um, it might have been after 10 o'clock at night and, uh, you know, the car was pulled over by the police and they said to the driver, you know, what are you doing? He said, I'm an Uber driver. They said to me, what are you doing? I said, I'm a doctor. I'm just going home. I said, okay, great. Um, but, you know, we had quite a significant period of, of you know, trying to minimize. Time profit set up and then take, take us from that point. So, you know, another lesson learned as you go along the way. So when we started our nonprofit course, I'm like, you know, I want to do this quick. And the people that were helping us do it, the outfit, they're like, you know, you need to have a board and you and your wife cannot be the majority on the board. It has to be at least three, three other people uh, on the board. So we're like, all right. So in order to get quick yeses, I went and just ping, you know, a couple people, three people that I knew would, pro you know, had an interest in music. They were involved in music in some way. And I was pretty sure they would say yes. So I could put their names on the application. Mm -hmm. And that's how we started. And, uh, 
And as many nonprofits realize, you know, their starter board isn't always the board you're going to grow with. And so we learned in time, you know, to start, you know, asking other people and bringing other people in to help us. And, you know, we were very grateful eternally for the people to help us, you know, start it because it helped us turn it around more quickly. Uh, but, you know, we learned to bring in more experienced people, uh, business managers. My, my wife and I, we have a lot of great ideas. We're very creative, you know, running and growing a nonprofit, you know, we're, that's brand new. <laughs> so, you know, we need a lot of help and guidance and, and business knowledge from people that have experience. So, so we're slowly bringing in that into our board, into our advisory circle. And it's making a huge difference because we're just getting answers, the right answers a lot faster. Yes. And that's the key word, the right answers. <laughs> right. The yes. Right you know, and things, you know, sometimes, you know, they'll call us out on things that, you know, we've been like, you know, we know we're doing this this way and this is not, you know, but and they're like, you know, you should fix this. <laughs> yeah. And that's the importance of having a coach because it's yeah. so on, on multiple fronts, because I probably had, I think, five different coaches, I want to say, because remember, I told you I was all over the place, you know, niche wise. So yeah. I, I had one for for fitness. I had one for I mean, uh, a board wearing a mask if you were doing vigorous exercise. So a cyclist wouldn't be wearing a mask. A runner wouldn't be wearing a mask. But if you were doing a walk around a park, you would. And so that's that's a, you know that's had some of the issues which are similar to the United States um, in terms of people's view on these on liberties. But essentially, Australia's come out of this pretty well. Um, I think we're the most open country in the world right now compared nice. to say, and New Zealand is close. I think Taiwan's done well and that they had some community transmissions at the time. But I think you know we are all watching to see what happens. Our vaccination program has started in the last few weeks. Um, and so, you know, we right now, uh, two of the vaccines are approved here and other vaccines are going through their regulatory processes. Um, so I think, look, I, I think we, we will have to manage the concept of community transmission as travel increases, because it's inevitable that when someone travels from one part of the world to the other, someone who's got asymptomatic virus will come in and then they either may be symptomatic or they essentially transmit it to another individual and, and numbers, numbers go up. Yeah. And clearly there are a number of um, uh, mutant strains. There's now a New York strain that came was that started in Washington Heights. Um, and I think that's what, you know, I think public health authorities around the world are very, very concerned about what is the, what is the transmissibility of the mutant strains what is the potential harm of the mutant strains and what is the effect of vaccinations with the mutant strains? So I think, um, you know, public health authorities around the world and governments uh, are understandably concerned about what the mutant strains may do. Yes. Yeah. Like here, in, here in the U S like if, if it didn't happen during an election year, I really think our, our protocols probably would have been better, but the two parties was like using it as a tool against each other while so many people were dying, you know, and I, I have no problem saying that on the record because it was definitely politicized, definitely. And it was just, just a shame, but um, Texas and Mississippi, I think, I think Mississippi is already fully open. I think Texas opens tomorrow, but they're the first two States to fully open like here. We still have some of our restrictions in, I mean, Rhode Island, some of our restrictions here, they were just lowered, well, starting tomorrow, 
but mask wearing is still mandatory indoor and outdoor. But they just eased up the uh, restrictions some. But yeah, it's still pretty, uh, still pretty hairy over here. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, obviously the the case numbers in the United States are coming down. They're mm. still very significant, but they're coming down, and the vaccine rate is going up. Um, yeah. And so these are these are encouraging signs. But obviously, the United States is a, is a very large country, um, and uh, the, the way people are managing this from a public health perspective. You know, it's quite different, I think, state to state and in some cases city to city. Oh, yeah. um, so it's going to be really important to see, you know, does the trend continue downward? Uh, does the vaccination trend, you know, increase significantly? Um, you know, so that's that's going to be very, very critical, um, yeah. you know, to see, you know, how the United States progresses, you know, through this very difficult time. But much of the world is in... Uh, you know, you know, quite a difficult position. I mean, Europe is in you know, great, going through a period of great difficulty. Um, I believe there's going to be an announcement very soon from the Tokyo Olympics as to the nature of uh, international audiences, and you know, in terms of actually physically attending the, the games. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, J Japan is in a you know difficult position right now in terms of the status of the virus. So, you know, this is not over yet, and you know, I, I think you know, I don't expect international travel to really recommence to a great degree until potentially either very, very, you know, perhaps quarter four, 2021, but more likely 2022. Yeah. Um, and then it may be quite restrictive travel where we go from a bubble, you know, a country where it's, you know, very, very low numbers to another country where it's very, very low numbers. Yeah. And, and, and perhaps it's a country where, you know, you're not in transit anywhere. You know, you're going direct by a direct flight, you know, somewhere. Um, to try and minimise interaction with others, um, and uh, you know it's it's clearly very very difficult for specific sectors, you know, the travel, hospitality, where you've come from, I and mean, that's a real challenge. Uh, you know, I feel I have great empathy for, you know, you know, restaurateurs and cafes um, because you know it, it's it's a, it's a difficult business, and I and I really feel for, you know, say that say the person who might have saved some money over the first decade of their career and decided to start a restaurant or a cafe or some business like that, probably put all their capital into it. They couldn't have planned for something like this and they wouldn't have had the capacity to plan for, you know, no revenue coming in or and, and negative cash flow. Uh, you know, it's very, very difficult. And so that's why I'm really happy when I can go to a cafe or go to a restaurant, I, I want to spend, you know, money and, and support these, you know, these people who, you know, sort of bring some joy to my life. and. Uh, there's yeah. a cafe I go to regularly. It's, it's in my street. They're fantastic people. They serve fantastic coffee. And I always go and talk to them. I buy my beans from them. I'm really happy to, to help them and support them. Um, yeah. Because they've gone through great difficulty. And I think, you know, it's really tough. I think one of the, you know, you talked about self-insight. You know, it was interesting to see how businesses pivoted when this all started. And, and some businesses did it beautifully and some didn't. You know, yeah. there's a butcher close to me, very, very good butcher. You know, they started doing home delivery and they were not charging a high fee for the delivery and it's wonderful meat. And so the yeah. ability to put in an order, say on a Sunday and Monday, have a fantastic steak delivered to you, you know, it's terrific. And, you know, you can support the business. They've pivoted uh, and some businesses pivoted very successfully. Uh, and unfortunately, some businesses, you know, really didn't pivot and think about, you know, the customer on the other side who's trying to support their business. 
See, and, and, yeah, and that goes maybe. Yeah. Go on. Sorry, I was gonna say, and that goes back to what we were saying earlier about doing what you do well. You know, because yeah. like some some people can think quickly on their feet, other people cannot. You know, so like when it actually came here a year ago yesterday. So like that's yeah, when okay. it first got reported. Yeah, it was March third. Yeah. Because yeah. I actually emceed an event. It was Sunday, March first, and yes. then that then that next day, I'm Saturday, whatever. But it was that Monday was when we got the first reported case here. We had one of our local schools had a trip abroad in Italy, and then they they brought it here, and then just watching things in in Spain, Italy, and China. I actually pulled out of my facility. Um, it was like 10 days before it was mandated. So it was like, I already saw it coming. We were doing outdoor classes and classes on Zoom. And then I had started the podcast in that time too. Cause I was like, this is bad. Like, this is really bad. And my first thought too was also like H1N1 from back in what was that, 2008 through, through 2010. And, you know, like the bird flu and all, all the other pandemics that I've been through in my lifetime. And I never dreamed it was going to be that bad, <laughs> you know, never, but I had to, I had to pivot like quick, quickly, but just some people just can't do it. They're just stuck in yeah. what they know and that's it. And like so many gyms here closed, they closed up. Like they were offering free, free classes. I'm like, you can't pay your bills with free classes. You know, yeah. it's like people, people see like when people come to you, they're coming to you because they're not well and you can help make them well. And it was like when people come to me, it's for accountability, you know? So it's like, yeah, we have all the cool toys in the gym, but if you have some stuff at home or even just your body weight, I can still guide you. So yeah. it's like, you know, that there's still value there. Like I'm still guiding you, but people are like, oh, well, other people are doing free classes. We have to do free classes. And I didn't drop my prices at all. Because I'm like, I'm not changing any. Like, you're still getting me. It's just a different format. Kind of yep. like you like you with um, the, the pop-up GP. Yeah, and I think you've, you know, I think in, a, in an entrepreneurial sense, you've got to have a very clear idea, a very clear perspective on what, do you, what is your value proposition? How are yeah. you providing value to an individual? And you can decide to compete on service or you can compete on price. And, 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 you know, most people would say, you know, going to a gym, managing their health, it's all, they, they regard it as a luxury, whereas to me, I think it's an essential service. You know, your health is, is so critical. Uh, and yeah. I've had lots of conversations with patients about, about health during this time. And, you know, like you, I've got all my equipment. And I've, had, I've built up equipment actually since I was a medical student at home. So yeah. I've got barbells at home. I've got an Olympic bar at home. I've got a football at home. I've got a skipping rope at home. I, um, you know, I, I, I was going to Europe probably five years ago for a holiday and I bought some resistance bands. Well, the resistance bands are just fantastic. Um, <laughs> when I was in New York, I bought an assault bike. And they are, <laughs> they are just, I mean, anyone who's never used an assault bike. They're brutal. <laughs> br 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 brutal would be an improvement. I mean, brutal would be tight. You're, you're, being, you're being very soft now, Rob. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I would, I, when I bought my, I bought that bike in New York and I would have days where I would do a weight session and then I'd do an assault bike. And after using the assault bike, you know, you are, you are almost unconscious. 
Yeah. Uh, and, you can, <laughs> and, you, and you can barely walk. But it's a fantastic exercise. And again, mm. it complements everything else. And I think, you know, one thing I think that people have struggled with is, you know, I can exercise at home. I can exercise by myself. I'll put some music on in the background. You know, that there'll be, you know, a lot of DJs are doing podcasts. You know, Fat Boy Slim did all these podcasts um, and, and YouTube channels. Dead Mouse has his own YouTube channel and he did some live concerts. So I'd put some music on and I feel motivated and I feel good and I feel like I've accomplished something when I finish the exercise. But a lot yeah. of people need, they, they want to be either in a gym because they want to be around people and I can understand that or they want to be in a class where they've got a motivated, you know, trainer like, just, just like yourself who's giving them energy and they walk out and they feel fantastic afterwards. So I can understand yes. that mindset. So a lot of people have found that very difficult not be able to go to the gym. I always say to people, you know, exercise is the most functional stress management tool you can have. Uh, and I spend a lot of time talking about um, exercise in the context of health, whether it's weight management, weight loss. So now like, I really don't get much any, anymore because people know that I'm not going to respond. So you're going to waste your time by putting that comment. And that's really a part of, you know, emotional intelligence. And, and honestly, that's something that took me many decades to learn, you know, not just online in the online world, but in the real world. 